This is an alabaster jar from Israel containing spikenard, a fragrant ointment or perfume. In the book of 2 Kings, a prophet is commanded to pour oil on the head of a king and declare, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And this verse reminded me of the story of Mary. She, her sister Martha, and brother Lazarus lived just over the ridge of Jerusalem's Mount of Olives, which is behind me. Mary of Bethany also performed a prophetic act when she poured a costly ointment from an alabaster box upon the head of King Yeshua. Mary broke the seal of this alabaster box worth a year's wages, and she poured it upon his head. She was the only follower of the Lord who had the intuition to anoint King Messiah. I'll explore this amazing prophetic action by a woman in the New Testament and what this anointing can mean in your life. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 89 and verse 20, the Lord said, I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil have I anointed him. And in the New Testament, the son of David, Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, was also anointed as king. All four Gospels mention the anointing of Yeshua at Bethany. The woman identified in the Gospel of John as Mary of Bethany came, as it were, out of the blue at a dinner party in Jesus' honor. And she interrupted the event by pouring the entire contents of an alabaster jar upon Jesus. And the whole house was filled with a fragrance. Now all the people were indignant at the woman's chutzpah, at her raw nerve. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done a good work. In pouring this ointment upon my body, she did it in advance of my burial. And he said, wherever this gospel shall be preached, this woman's deed will be told as a memorial of her. Even as we're doing in this broadcast, nearly 2,000 years later. Most Bible commentators emphasize the theme of Mary anointing Yeshua for his burial. That's the way I was always taught it as I was growing up. But the question we want to examine today is, was Jesus, Yeshua, in fact, anointed King of Israel? When he explained that Mary had anointed his body in advance for burial, he alluded to spices and ointments that the Jews used to bury their dead. Funeral rites were surely not Mary's intention. In fact, none of his disciples had that level of foresight although the Lord had tried to prepare them that he would be crucified. Mary could hardly have imagined that the Lord's burial would be within just days. Nevertheless, she was inspired to perform a deeply profound prophetic act, and she surely had something else in mind. Various scriptural references to kings being consecrated and anointed with oil are found in the Hebrew Bible in 1 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and in the verse I mentioned in 
Psalm 89:20. Jesus, David's greater son, was the Messiah, meaning anointed one. And in a sense, he was also anointed king of Israel. Amazingly, the human agent was a woman who by virtue of her actions proved that she was a prophetess. The Gospel of John identifies her as Mary of Bethany. So extravagantly and quite dramatically, the daring female disciple broke the seal of the jar and outpoured the entire contents of the purest of spikenard worth a year's wages upon the Lord's head and his feet. The biblical spikenard, sometimes simply called nard, was a costly aromatic ointment that was preserved in alabaster jars like the one I showed you. Now imagine with me, how bold was her action? The disciples resented it and didn't understand, but Mary wasn't reprimanded by Jesus. On the contrary, she ministered deeply to the Lord on a level that nobody else had dared nor discerned. Furthermore, she was commended by him in such a way that her detractors were silenced. How profoundly deep is this gospel episode? Jesus said the anointing would be a memorial to her wherever this gospel is preached, and most artists and theologians attribute the act to Mary Magdalene. Yet the Gospel of John clearly identified her, as I said, as Mary of Bethany. So could the anointer have possibly been one and the same person? Could Mary of Bethany have become Mary Magdalene? Some church traditions say they were the same person, but other churches say they were two separate individuals. But according to the account in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, those who were present were indignant and they murmured against her, saying, what a waste. This jar might have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. Can you imagine complaining that this beautiful act of devotion to the Lord was a waste? What could ever be wasted on him? Such small and limited vision some people have and still have. But Jesus defended her extravagance, saying, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And then with the eyes of a true seer, he added, she has done what she could. She came in advance to anoint me for burial. And then Mark's gospel says, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 who had been filled with indignation, put action to his resentment and he went straight out to betray the Lord. You see, one person's devotion is another person's resentment. We must learn and accept the harsh reality that no matter how sincerely we serve the Lord, there'll always be people who resent our heartfelt ministries. The anointing of Jesus is a story of costly sacrifice as well as a prophetic act of sheer love, but it's so much more. I read a scholarly book by an author named Richard Bacham, and it was called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. The author described Mary's prophetic act as an actual anointing ceremony of King Messiah. 
You see, the following day, Yeshua did ride into Jerusalem, which is right next door to Bethany. And the scene that he rode into is, is in this camera shot. In the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, a messianic prophecy that proclaimed, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation. He's humble, riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Samuel, the great prophet, had anointed David, and other prophets had anointed Israel's kings. But how absolutely revolutionary that on the previous evening, a woman was ordained by God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to perform an important action to actually anoint the anointed one. When Jesus noted that Mary's deed would be remembered as a memorial, he honored and he elevated Mary of Bethany in a way similar to his own mother's prophetic words that are found in the Magnificat. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 48, Mary, the mother of Jesus, prophesied concerning herself that all generations shall call me blessed. But here in Bethany, Yeshua also said that Mary of Bethany's act would be remembered and extolled throughout the world. Well, men in the day of Jesus were scandalized by the way that he empowered women. And guess what? They still are today. But Jesus just kept on going and we keep on going also for his sake. Only the Gospel of John identifies the anointer as Mary of Bethany. The account of the event is found in the 12th chapter of John. And it makes note, definitely, that she was a sister of Lazarus and Martha, thus pinpointing precisely the anointer as Mary of Bethany, the one who had actually sat at Jesus' feet as a disciple to absorb his teachings. So Mary of Bethany, in fact, was acknowledged by the Lord as his disciple. You see, her sister Martha was distracted and had said to him, Lord, Tell Mary to help me with all the work around here. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you fret about so many things, but Mary has chosen the better part, and it won't be taken from her. Many scholars say this Mary was the first female disciple. And so I ask again, could she have been the Magdalene? Mary Magdalene, who had exclaimed to the risen Lord, at his empty tomb. Rabboni, my rabbi, my teacher. I've often wondered about the absence of Mary of Bethany at the cross, but if she was also surnamed Magdalene during her discipleship, she would of course have been present both at the cross and at the empty tomb. Sometimes the Gospel of John refers to Mary Magdalene, but other references simply call her Mary. Well, we'll return to that thought momentarily, but first let's go back to the amazing and unorthodox anointing ceremony in Bethany. According to the author I mentioned previously, Richard Bachham, who wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, 
A number of scholars have said that Mary's anointing of the Messiah is comparable with the anointing of kings in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The action could be interpreted as designating Jesus as the royal Messiah. And so Mary's action could easily have been perceived by others as having messianic significance. Admittedly, it would have been very, very surprising for the Messiah to be anointed by a woman since it had been the great prophet Samuel who, inspired by God, had anointed King David, the ancestor of the Messiah. But if the messianic significance of the anointing at Bethany is not immediately clear to us today, it certainly would have been clear to the original audience. And Jesus, no doubt, recognized inwardly the terrific messianic significance of that anointing. But he had the right to interpret her prophetic action according to his own understanding of his first messianic vocation. And that was that he must suffer and die to make atonement for the sins of the people. He knew first that he must fulfill the role of the suffering servant, referred to by the rabbis as Messiah ben Yosef, before he could fully become Messiah ben David, the triumphant and returning son of David, king of kings, and lord of lords. The Gospel of John dates the anointing of Jesus by Mary at the beginning of the Passion Week just prior to Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem. And so Jesus is anointed as the Messiah in Bethany just before, as I said, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey the following day as the anointed King Messiah. Now in the non-chronological account that Mark gives in his gospel, the anointing in Bethany is related to Judas betraying Jesus. You see, relaying this information to temple authorities that Jesus was anointed no doubt furthered suspicions against Jesus as a revolutionary king. But the timeline in John's gospel was accurate. Mark was also correct in arranging his gospel according to the account to explain the jealousy of Jesus, that he had in fact been anointed as king, but John put it in its chronological order that he rode into Jerusalem here the next day. Now, what was Mary's motivation besides love? The people watching her costly drama were indignant, as I said, but she also was perhaps indignant. Indignant against the unrequited love and lack of response to Jesus by the religious rulers. In her heart, she knew he was King Messiah. Therefore, it's interesting that in Mark's and Matthew's accounts, she's described as anointing Jesus upon the head. Whereas the Gospels of John and Luke, on the other hand, obscure the messianic significance by emphasizing that Mary anointed his feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. You may wonder why sometimes one gospel account differs in emphases from the others. The answer is that all four gospels are correct, but all four emphasize different aspects 
in the same way that all of us would have reported events from various angles if we had been present on the scene. Matthew and Mark focus upon the kingly anointing beginning upon Yeshua's head, as it were the anointing of Messiah ben David. The Gospel of John emphasizes the servant role of the Messiah, as it were Messiah ben Yosef, the servant king, whose feet were after all going to be pierced as part of the atonement on the cross. However, the Gospel of John does preserve the messianic significance of the anointing happening just prior to Jesus' entry here into Jerusalem. But because of the intimate act of wiping his feet with her loosened hair, the anointing in Luke's gospel has been associated with Mary Magdalene. That explains a lot because the association is made because Mary Magdalene was presumed to have been a loose woman. Although the gospel accounts never specify that she had been a prostitute. We are told that devils were cast out of Mary Magdalene by Jesus, but again, nowhere does the New Testament say that she was ever formally a harlot. In Luke's account, the anointer washes the feet of Jesus also with her tears and kisses his feet as a separate incident from the anointing depicted seemingly in the other Gospels. However, it should be carefully noted that both recorded incidences took place in the house of a man named Simon. So the story is too unusual for it to have been two different women upon two different occasions in the same house. Although the Magdalene usually receives credit for this action, as I said, John's Gospel clearly identifies her as Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And so that's why many believe they are one and the same person. So why is Mary of Bethany named in the Gospel of John as the anointer of Jesus, but not named in the other Gospels? Well, I did some research on this, and the identity of the anointer would have been well known, of course, in the early church. But some scholars believe her name was protected by the writers of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, because the life of her brother Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead by Jesus, was being threatened. And so for that reason also, the raising of Lazarus is absent in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, due to this caution, because the chief priest had made plans to kill Lazarus as well. However, the Gospel of John was written later than Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and some of the main disciples were already dead. And therefore, it's believed that Mary and Lazarus could now be named without concern for retaliation. And that's why Mary of Bethany would have been identified earlier as the Magdalene, as protection to sort of cover her identity. Perhaps while she resided in Galilee as part of the apostolic band, along with other women who traveled with the Lord, women like Joanna and Susanna, perhaps Mary adopted the Magdalene surname as a protection or simply as a way to reinvent herself. Think with me for a moment 
how each of us can have different brandings from time to time. For example, sometimes I'm called the Christine who lives in Jerusalem at Jaffa Gate, although I'm also known as an American. But I'm also British, a subject of Her Majesty the Queen. My Palestinian friends may call me Christina the Palestina, but also I'm simply the wife of Peter and the mother of David and Daniel. I'm also Christine the Evangelist. So you see, we all can have numerous labels. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, Mary of Clopas, who was the sister-in-law of Jesus' mother, stood at the cross, and she's described as the other Mary to distinguish her from Mary Magdalene, meaning that there were basically two disciples of Jesus named Mary. So the deduction by many scholars is that Mary of Bethany was most likely also Mary Magdalene. Now, no detail in the Bible is without significance. In God's providence and orderings, why was the Lord anointed king in Bethany? Why not Jerusalem? Well, one of the meanings of the name of the village Bethany is house of affliction. That's prophetic because indeed affliction is what the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 was all about. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 describes the Lord's messianic mission. Surely he have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. House of afflictions, sufferings, was Bethany. Furthermore, from personal experience in the ministry, I want to talk about the actual performance of a prophetic act. I've been caught up in the Spirit from time to time to perform specific prophetic acts, and they are never manufactured when they are genuine. They just happen by inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. So I want to make the point that Mary probably didn't orchestrate in her mind how this act of adoration and consecration would unfold. She simply seized the opportunity and perhaps at first began rather tentatively to pour the oil upon the Lord's head. But as she perceived that he was receptive to her daring chutzpah, she became more emboldened and no doubt increasingly overcome with gratitude and emotion. And thus she ended up falling at his feet in abject humility, weeping, continuing to pour the perfume and unburdening great pent-up emotion to honor him. So let's combine all of the eyewitness accounts from the four Gospels of the anointing. And when we combine all four accounts, we learn all the ingredients of this prophetic action. That it started with a pouring upon his head. That the ointment flowed down and was poured onto his feet. And furthermore, the anointing was mingled with Mary's tears and with wiping of his feet with her hair, and also the kissing of his feet, the adoration. This action is reminiscent of Psalm 133, 
of the anointing of the high priest, which flowed from the top of the head down the beard to the hem of the garment. The fragrance, no doubt, remained for days and was perhaps a comfort to Yeshua during his passion because, as I heard one preacher say, somebody had loved him enough to sacrifice their very best. And because Mary had chosen the better part to listen to the words of our Lord, unlike her sister Martha, who was too busy, Mary was in tune with prophetic events. Because she had learned carefully sitting at Yeshua's feet, she had been prepared not to miss this pivotal moment to anoint the King of Kings. What an honor. Perhaps she had purchased the alabaster jar specifically for this act and she had waited for the right moment, but perhaps she could no longer tolerate the religious authorities' misunderstandings and rejection of Jesus. But I think that it was an impromptu flash of inspiration. Yes, it was an inspired idea. She acted, I believe, under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. It was a moment of revelation for time and eternity, and she seized the moment. King David was anointed by Samuel while his brothers watched, but David had to endure much contradiction, resentment by his brothers, rejection, and the passing of time before the prophecy was fulfilled. King Yeshua was anointed in Bethany, and although the wait has been very long, he will soon return as ruling King of Kings and Lord of Lords to this city. How, may I ask, does this story apply to our lives today? Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, 8, she did what she could. And doesn't Daniel 11 and 32 declare that people who know God will be strong and do exploits? That means we'll take action. Despite the murmurings of men, do what you can. If you're a woman, the devil will say you're forbidden to serve the Lord. And if you're young, Satan will say you're not old enough. And if you're old, he'll say it's too late. But be strong and take action anyway. Don't accept any of those lies. Like Mary of Bethany, take action today as you are led by the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel. Doing is evidence that a believer knows God. Others watching this drama, like Judas the betrayer, were indignant. But thank God Mary paid them no heed. She acted. Not only did she anoint Yeshua in advance of his burial, but one can say, truly, that she also anointed him as King Messiah. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this Bible study with me today. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv to watch our other programs, or you can watch this program again. You can also subscribe to our free color magazine, Exploits. I'd like for you to have a copy. Until next time, I'm Christine Darg, encouraging you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to do exploits. Shalom. Hello and welcome to the Western Wall Plaza. I'm Christine Darg, and behind me here in Jerusalem is the famous Mount of Olives. And Jesus used that as a parable. 
when he spoke of problems. He said, if you have a problem, don't pray to the mountain, don't think, don't meditate to the mountain. But he said, speak to the mountain, speak to the problem. Now, God's ways are not our ways, and His ways are higher than our ways. Because what do we normally do when we have a problem? We get on the telephone, we ring our friends, or we call somebody on the internet. But the Lord said, speak to the problem. Use your commanding power in His name to make the problem go. And I've written a book called Speak to the Mountain, and this is a teaching on our Lord's own teaching when he said, if you will speak to the problem, if you will say what you believe, you will have whatsoever you say. I want you to have this book. There are many messages in here that I've preached here in Jerusalem on healing, how to have divine health. And I'd like for you to get your own copy. It's very easy to do. Just go to our website at exploits.tv. I'm wishing you health and Shalom from Jerusalem.